As we come to our passage for this morning, we'll see that it marks a bit of a transition in the book of Exodus. So broadly speaking, the, the book of Exodus comprises three movements. So if this were a play, it would have three acts. Act one takes place in Egypt, where the people of Israel are toiling as slaves. We've seen the Lord has delivered them from Pharaoh, has brought them out of bondage, has enabled them to pass through the Red Sea on dry land, and as we saw last week, has drowned Pharaoh and his pursuing hordes. So the, the final sort of action of Act 1 was what we saw last week in Exodus 14. It ends, the curtain closes, as it were, with the king of Egypt and his forces face down, washed up on the shore of the Red Sea. Uh, the curtain opens on Acts, or Act 2, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. That'll be our passage, Lord willing, for next week. And this second act takes us roughly through chapter 18 or 19. This gets the people of Israel to Mount Sinai where they will encounter the Lord. Uh, act three takes place there at Mount Sinai. That's where the book of Exodus comes to its conclusion. At Sinai, Moses receives the law. The covenant with Israel is confirmed. The tent of meeting is very carefully constructed according to the Lord's instructions. Uh, and so our passage for this morning is something like a transition between Act 1 and Act 2. And what we see is that, as in any good Broadway musical, all the characters suddenly and without warning break into song. <laughs> this passage is sometimes referred to as the Song of Moses. I think that's a bit of a, a shorthand. Verse 1 tells us that Moses sang this song, but actually all the people of Israel sang with him. Uh, verses 20 and 21 show Miriam, who's, uh, we're told, is Aaron's sister. And sort of by one of the laws of math, I don't remember anymore, since Aaron is Moses' brother and Miriam is Aaron's sister, that makes Moses and Miriam brother and sister. We're told there in verses 20 to 21 that Miriam uh, leads the, the women of Israel in sort of singing a, a second round of this very same song. So don't imagine Moses sort of singing a solo while everyone watches him. Uh, this is perhaps the first instance in the Bible of what we've been doing here this morning, uh, corporate singing. It's not clear if this is the first time that the people of God have gathered together to sing his praises, but it's clear that they haven't stopped doing it for the last 3,500 years. Uh, what we're going to see as we dive into this song is, is that it worships the Lord both for what he's done in the past and also for what he will do for God's people in the future. And so that's going to be something like my outline. So just for the sake of giving you some sense of where we're going. First, let's look and see what Israel sings about what God has done for them in the past. And then we'll finish, Lord willing, by looking at what uh, they believe God will do for them in the future. I think as we walk through this song, uh, we will be reminded about some important things about the Lord, about the salvation that he's accomplished for his people and what it means for us as his people to praise and worship him. So let's begin by, by looking there at, at what this song tells us about what God has done in the past. We see this for the most part in verses 1 to 12 of our passage. I think the key idea is laid out for us here in the very first and, and the last verse of this song. So the song begins there in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, 
for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So the people of Israel are singing to the Lord. Why, they tell us? Because he has triumphed gloriously. How did he do that? Well, it says he did it by throwing the horse and its rider into the sea. Uh, There at the very end of the song, in verse 18, they declare that the Lord will reign forever and ever. And what gives them that confidence? It tells us in verse 19. It says, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. So verse 1 and verse 19, the the beginning of the song and the end of the song give us the same idea. Praise the Lord, for he has thrown uh, Pharaoh and his armies and his chariots and their horses and the riders. They've all gone into the sea. Then again in verse 20, we're told that Miriam leads the women of Israel out with tambourines and dancing. Right, so, so get it in your mind. This song of praise was not a solemn, sort of stodgy, somber affair. This was a, a song of great joy and praise. And it starts up again there in verse 21. And it's basically, what we see is they're singing the same words that we saw back at the beginning. It says in verse 21, And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord. Why? For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So right at the outset, I think we see here a helpful template or pattern laid down for us as we think about our worship of the Lord, particularly the way we worship him in song. Notice two things right here at the outset. Notice that they're, first that their singing is focused on what it is the Lord has done for them. Right, that seems pretty clear. They're not praising God in the abstract They're not praising God in a vacuum. They're not worshiping a generic deity or the the God of their own conception. They're responding in song to Yahweh, to the Lord, to the one who had done something extraordinary in order to save them. There in verse 1, and again we saw in verse 19, and then in Miriam's echo in verse 21, you get that word for. They, They have a reason that they're singing. Praise the Lord, they say, for. He's thrown our enemy into the sea. The army that threatened us is no more. Their singing has a foundation. It's built on the mighty acts of God on their behalf. And brothers and sisters, so it is for us. As we come to corporate worship every Sunday, the the focus of our singing is not meant to be primarily ourselves or our feelings or our experiences rather, the large bulk of our singing should focus on what God has done for us, right? The idea is the same for us when we sing as it was for them. We look back. We remember what God has done for us, and we're moved to songs of joyful praise and thanksgiving. So notice that their their singing is built and founded on what God's done. Notice, second, also that their, their singing is focused not just on what God has done, but also on what the Lord is like, right? The imagery here that, that sort of captures the Lord's character in this song is that of a warrior. Look in verse three, where we read this. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Uh, when the ESV translates the Lord there, that's, that's Yahweh, 
the sort of personal covenant name that God had, had told Israel that they could call him by. Here, here Yahweh, the Lord, is celebrated as a victorious champion, yeah, one who went into battle on behalf of Israel so that his victory became their victory. In verses 4 and 5, if you look there, we see that uh, this man of war, this warrior, this champion, his weapon of choice, strangely enough, is the sea. We read there that he cast the army of Egypt into the Red Sea. The, the floods covered them. They were drowned in the depths. Now, in light of the rest of the Bible, that, that's significant, that the Lord here is pictured as a warrior who uses the sea as his weapon, because it reminds us of the creation account. If you remember back at creation in Genesis 1, the waters that cover the earth, they represent the forces of chaos, and into that chaos, we see the Lord imposes order for the benefit of humanity. God brings dry land out of the chaos of the sea. And that's what we saw last week. That's exactly what he did for his people at the Red Sea. He caused dry land to emerge from the chaos of the waters. But when it came to the enemies of his people, he plunged them into the waters he used that same creation power that worked so mightily on behalf of his people to deliver them from slavery. God used that same creation power to destroy their enemies. The sea is significant because it reminds us of God's creation power. It's also significant because it is in the Bible oftentimes a picture of God's judgment. Right? So just for one example, think back to the flood in Genesis where God sends waters of judgment to cover, uh, cover the world, to, to punish people for their sin, right? That's exactly what we've seen happen to Pharaoh and his army, right? It's significant that they, just, they didn't just die, right? God could have just sort of fried them on the sands of the Red Sea, but they died significantly in the waters of God's judgment, right? And the language here in this song repeatedly reminds us of that fact. They, they won't let us forget how it is that God uh, killed Pharaoh. There in verse 4, it says that, that they were sunk. Verse 5 says they went into the depths like a stone. Verse 10, it says they sank like lead. But again, God's people went through those same waters of judgment unharmed because the divine warrior, the Lord, Yahweh, was fighting for them, not against them. His power was unleashed to protect them, not destroy them. So we read there in verse 8 this, this word picture. It says, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Right, those piled up waters were Israel's salvation. That's what revealed the dry land so that they could pass through. But those same piled up waters became the destruction of Egypt. As we read there in verse 10, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. There in verse 12, you have this image of, of earth, the creation itself swallowing up the armies of Egypt. So the picture here is of Yahweh as a mighty warrior fighting on behalf of his people, unleashing his incredible power against their enemies. Right now, you have to remember, this is poetry, right? This is, this is a song. 
This is meant to, to call up images in our minds, right? So just listen uh, to some of these words and get the sense of what, of what they're meant to communicate. Again, there in verse 8, we read about the blast of your nostrils. Verse 12 talks about the Lord stretching out his right hand, right? That's a symbol of strength and power. There in verse 6, we read this, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. There in verse 7, it says, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. That's vivid imagery. The point is hard to miss. What took place at the Red Sea, this conflict between, between Yahweh and Pharaoh, it was not a fair fight. It was not a, a narrow victory. Right? Pharaoh was the grass, and the Lord's fury at him was the lawnmower. Right? Pharaoh is pictured here as stubble. The Lord's anger at him is a consuming fire. Pharaoh was a rock. The Lord's judgment was an ocean in which he was to sink. Now, I wonder if that language of the Lord as a warrior comes as a surprise to you. I wonder if that's an uncomfortable way for you to think about God. I think some people nowadays might be offended by this kind of imagery. Maybe you feel like this kind of thing is, is somehow beneath what God ought to be like. Uh, there is a kind of surface level reading of the Bible that I think is popular, or at least common, that says the, the God of the Old Testament is full of judgment and wrath. So he does things like have flaring nostrils. His fury is like stubble. He's, he's always drowning people in oceans. But the God of the New Testament is full of grace and love. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't get them confused. We shouldn't think that, that the God of the New Testament, the God that Jesus came to tell us about and to, and to bring us to is like this God of the Old Testament. The problem with that way of thinking, of course, is that it doesn't make any sense of what the Bible actually says. If you struggle with the idea of praising God for his powerful right arm, for his nostrils blowing a, a breath of judgment, for the fury that consumes his enemies like stubble, it might be because up until this point, you've lived a life of relative ease. It may be that it's an indication that you've been sheltered from, from great persecution and suffering. It strikes me that you'd have to be surrounded by a tremendous amount of comfort to come to the conclusion that God's anger against his enemies is a bad thing. So this might be a particular danger for us, for those of us who live in Northern Virginia, because most of us do, by God's kindness, live in relative ease and comfort. We don't immediately identify enemies who are, who are actively trying to threaten our lives. Right? We don't have a pharaoh, someone who's tried to kill our children and keep us in slavery. But my guess is that if you lived in North Korea or Afghanistan or Somalia or Libya or Pakistan or Eritrea, uh, places where 12 or 13 Christians a day lose their lives for their faith, my guess is your sensibilities would not be offended by the idea that the Lord is and will execute hot vengeance on his enemies and yours. In fact, this is a pattern 
that we see carried over in the New Testament. This is not an Old Testament idea. So, for example, just one example in the book of Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament, in chapter 15, we see the, the martyrs. We see those who have, have uh, it says, conquered the beast by, by loving uh, the Lord more than they loved their own lives. We see these people who have died for their faith. And, and we read there in, in Revelation 15 that these martyrs, it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And do you know what happens immediately after they sing that song, after these people who have lost their lives for their faith sing this song, the song of Moses and of the Lamb? The, the very next thing that happens in the book of Revelation is that the wrath of God is poured out on the world. You see a pattern. God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament praise the Lord. They break into song when they consider how the Lord fights for them against their enemies. Brothers and sisters, that's our great hope, that the Lord fights for us in every area of our lives, that he has fought and overcome the evil one, the enemy of our souls, with a mighty and glorious act by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for us. God has delivered us from everything that would do us harm and will deliver us. Before we move on, we should stop and consider that in this passage, in this song, we are seeing the Lord accomplish his purpose for all of these events. Do you remember what God told Moses about why he was allowing Pharaoh to pursue Israel? Israel dramatically escapes from Egypt. It feels like they're finished. Uh, then Pharaoh and his armies pursue. And the Lord tells Moses why he's allowed this to happen. Uh, back in chapter 14, in verse 4, it says this. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, that is the people of Israel. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So the Lord, through all of this, intends to teach the Egyptians, and Pharaoh in particular, about who he is. There in, in verse 9 of chapter 15, the Song of Moses reflects on Pharaoh's ignorant pride. We get a little glimpse into what was going on in Pharaoh's mind as he, as he plunged headlong into the Red Sea, thinking that it would stay open for him as well. It says there in verse 9, The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Well, that's what Pharaoh's mind was, was thinking as he plunged into the Red Sea, thinking about how he was going to win, about how his mighty right hand was going to take all that it wanted how he was going to be shown to be a mighty warrior. But by the end, he had learned his lesson. It was too late, but he finally completely understood who Yahweh is. 
The Lord says he's working to get his glory over victory, in his victory over Pharaoh. We also see that coming to fruition here in this song. Look there in verse 2. The people sing, they say, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So God's people fulfill God's purposes in their praises of him. He saved them with his mighty right hand, and they returned to him glory and joyful praise. They raise their voice in, in delight. They cry out that he is their strength. Right, That much has become clear. He is their song. He is the thing worth singing about. He has become their salvation. Right? They had no other options. They had no hope. Only Yahweh could save them, and he did. They declare there that he is the God of their fathers. And now they embrace him and exalt him as their God as well. It feels like it comes together uh, there in verse 11, uh, where they sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? All right, brothers and sisters, that's it. That's the point that the people of Israel would observe all that God had done for them and would be brought to this point where the, the head knowledge of God and their experience of him would intersect with their hearts and they would cry out to him. Who, who is like you? Who could possibly be as holy, as awesome, as wonderful, as loving, as kind, as glorious as you are, O Lord? And the same is true for us. When we sing together as a church, it's the same thing that's happening here on the shore of the, the Red Sea. It's the people who have been redeemed by the mighty acts of God, singing praises to their Redeemer about their redemption. And brothers and sisters, you realize we have an even greater act of salvation to celebrate. Right? As we've seen over and over in the past few weeks, the exodus is meant to serve as a shadow. It is a, a template. It's a picture of the coming redemption that, that God will accomplish in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Israel is moved to worship like this, simply by the shadow, this temporal expression of salvation, how much more should we, who have seen the cross of Christ by faith, how much more should we live our lives in constant praise? How much more should we joyfully gather on Sunday morning to lift up our voices to praise our Redeemer? This is one of the most important things we do as a congregation. When we come together, we sing, not just to fill time, not just because it's a tradition, because this is actually a big part of why God saves his people. He wants to delight us with his love and his power and his salvation so that we would break out in joyful, heartfelt songs of praise. Right? That's what we're doing when we sing together. We're not primarily trying to create a feeling in us. Though again, worship certainly should be an expression of our feelings. But the point is that in our song, we worship the Lord. We give him glory we return to him what he is due 
for all that he is and all that he's done for us. The people of Israel look back, they see what the Lord has done, and they praise him in song. Let's move on now and see how they praise him for what he will do in the future. We see that in verses 13 to 21. It seems this section involves a bit of prophetic inspiration. Moses leads them to sing about events that are still off in the future, some of which they sing about as if they've already happened. So perhaps this is Moses functioning as a prophet. We're told in Deuteronomy 18 that, in fact, Moses was a great prophet. Perhaps the text is trying to sort of acknowledge or flag this for us there in verse 20 when we're told that Miriam herself was a prophetess. But in any event, we see Israel speaking to God in praise for what he will do with such certainty that it's going to happen, that they they speak of it in the past tense. And what we see is that the the song, as it moves into a transition from looking to the past to looking to the future, reflects on something like three more movements in history that that are still off in the distance. Uh, Three kind of events or or time periods. Uh, First, it looks forward to the conquest of Canaan, there in verses 14 to 16. They sing... The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So the song looks forward here to what will happen when the people of Israel go into the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to give to them. There in verse 14, the people of Canaan hear about what it is the Lord has done for Israel. And when these people for whom the Lord fights come through their land, it says they tremble. There at the end of verse 15, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. The song uh, singles out three specific groups of Canaanites for special mention. There at the end of verse 14, the the inhabitants of Philistia are seized with pangs. So if you remember back to chapter 13, the Lord intentionally didn't lead his people out of Egypt directly into Canaan in the most direct route because that direct route would have taken them through the land of the Philistines. And the Lord knew they simply weren't ready for it, that that would mean war, and that the people of Israel uh, couldn't handle the prospect of conflict with Philistia. But here we see that when it does happen, it's the Philistines who are terrified. And as you go on through the Old Testament, you see that this is exactly what happens from Samson terrorizing the Philistines in the book of Judges, even ending his life by, by pulling down their pagan temple Uh, with his bare hands, to the almost comical scene in 1 Samuel 5 where the Philistines capture the ark of the Lord and they they put it in the temple of their idol god, Dagon, thinking that they're showing the supremacy of their god over Yahweh, only to come by in the morning and find the, the statue of Dagon on the ground, face down, hacked into pieces in front of the ark of the covenant. The people there in 1 Samuel 5 of Ashdod, the, the major Philistine city, it says we're covered in tumors 
until they finally returned the ark. You've got the boy uh, David in 1 Samuel 17, cutting off the head of the Philistine giant Goliath. Right Over the course of the Old Testament, the Israelites are bad news for the Philistines. The Lord is fighting for Israel. The second group that gets singled out here in the song in verse 15 uh, is the people of Edom. Uh, these are the descendants of Esau. We read in Deuteronomy 2 that as the people of Israel traveled through their land, these, these Edomites were terribly afraid. Uh, the third group mentioned there is in the middle of verse 15 where trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. Again, we see a bit of a reason why in Judges chapter 3. So kids, if the idea of a bad guy getting killed while he's going to the bathroom makes you laugh, have your parents read Judges chapter 3 to you today at lunch. Right? The Moabites were oppressing Israel, but the Lord didn't bring his people out of Egypt so that they could be oppressed by a lesser king, a pettier overlord. And so he raised up a judge named Ehud. And in Judges 3, uh, we read that he kills the bad guy while he's going to the bathroom and that the Israelites killed 10,000 Moabite warriors and had peace for 80 years. So there in verse 16 of, of this song, you get a summary. Speaking of all the people of Canaan, it says, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you've purchased. I read that again because that description of the Canaanites, I think, is significant. It says there that they are still as a stone. Well, who else in this song is compared to a stone? Well, Pharaoh and his hosts there in verse 5. Right? They sink to the bottom of the Red Sea like a stone. The connection is being made for us between what happened at the Red Sea and what's going to happen when the people enter the land. Right? The people of Canaan will suffer the same fate as the, the forces of Egypt. They will fall by the hand of Yahweh. The big picture here is that this song looks forward prophetically to the fact that the Lord is going to be the same warrior in the future that he was for them in the past. He raised up Moses. He delivered Israel from Egypt with an outstretched hand. And he's going to do the very same thing as they go into the land of Canaan. Right? Verse 7 praises the Lord. It says, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. And that theme gets picked up here in verses 14 to 16. The same thing will be true in the future. Okay, so as the song moves along, it has sort of three movements. The first seems to be sort of the entrance into the land of Canaan. The second movement is there for us in verse 17, where the song envisions the Lord establishing his home on his own mountain. We read there that they sang, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So as the people of Israel come into the land, it says the Lord will plant them on his own mountain. Which mountain is that? It says the one on which he'll establish his home, his sanctuary. As the story of the Old Testament progresses, we will see that that mountain is Mount Zion, right? The mountain where Jerusalem is founded, where the, the temple of the Lord is built. We don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but I, I think we're meant to see in those words a foreshadowing 
of the life and the work of King David. It was David who finally subdued the kings of Edom and Moab and the rest of Canaan. It was David who established the city of Jerusalem and Mount Zion as the, the home for the Lord's sanctuary. But it seems the song here envisions a day where the people of Israel will not be wandering anymore, where they won't have to fight in the land of Canaan, but will be established in peace with the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And then that leads into the final movement here, the third movement in verse 18, where we read this, the Lord will reign forever and ever. You see here at the end, the timeline of this song is, is thrown wide open and into eternity. It, it starts, the song starts by looking back at all these dead Egyptians. And then it looks forward in the very near future to the conquest of Canaan. And then just a bit further out to the, the life and the work of King David. And the point seems to be that God is going to fight for us as a divine warrior going forward, just like he did in the past. And so now this glorious point is brought home even more clearly. The Lord is going to fight for his people forever and ever. He will reign over them. He will deliver them from their enemies for however long is necessary. Brothers and sisters, this is where we intersect with the timeline of this song. We're included in that forever and ever. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to think just a little bit more about that idea that we are part of that reign of the Lord forever and ever. And I think the place where we can sort of camp out is there in verse 13. We read there that God's people praise him as they turn to look at the future. It says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So as God's people look to the future here on the banks of the Red Sea, they are reminded that the Lord has always dealt with them in his steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, is an important one in the Old Testament. It, it's, it's a translation of the Hebrew word chesed. It's a word that translators never really know exactly how to capture. Different translations handle it different. Steadfast love is, is, uh, is fine. Uh, God's hesed is his covenant love. It's his specific love for his people. It's his never-failing, unchanging love. Right? To be clear, when, when the Bible talks about God's chesed, his steadfast love, or it may be translated in, in your version, depending on what you're reading, his covenant love, right? we, we're not talking about God's sort of general kindness and beneficence towards all of humanity. Right? This is particular love. This is specific love. This is God's love pledged to his people. Again, if you look there in verse 13, uh, to whom, or, or, or rather, who is it that God has led in steadfast love? Well, it says there, you've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. Right? Those are the objects of God's unfailing covenant love. Chesed is a love that can never die. It's a love that can never change. It's a love that never diminishes in the least because it's not based in our character and our goodness, but in God's. And so as Israel walks off into the next act of this drama, they do so with great confidence. This, 
This steadfast love is what they could bank on. This certain knowledge that the divine warrior who threw Pharaoh into the sea is a tender and loving shepherd who will lead his people. That's the imagery there. You have led in your steadfast love. It's a, it's a picture of a shepherd kindly and gently leading his sheep. They will make it to their dwelling place. Uh, verse 17 will come true. They will be brought through Canaan and into uh, the promised land because of God's great love. And so, brothers and sisters, this is no less our hope than it was theirs. Right? The Israelites, as they stood on that shore, looking back at the Egyptian army, face down in the sand, their armor glittering in the sun, could enjoy only a prophetic sliver of what God's chesed, his covenant love, really looks like. They saw God's chesed in the, in the bud. But we who stand on this side of the cross of Christ see it in full flower. Because the greatest demonstration of God's unfailing, steadfast, covenant love for his people came at the cross of the Lord Jesus. As the, the sinless, utterly holy, perfectly pleasing Son of God stood under the judgment that we deserved, taking the punishment that we were owed for our sins, and then rising from the dead in glorious victory. And so now we... We sing songs of redemption every bit as much as Israel, but they're just a little bit different. We look back to a different moment when our redemption was accomplished. We sing together what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford, and our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Doesn't that sound a bit like a new covenant, like a, like a this side of the cross version of the Song of Moses? That's why the people in Revelation 15 aren't just singing the Song of Moses. It says they're singing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. We know from Revelation 5 that's the Lamb who was slain, Jesus considered in his crucifixion. Right? The, the song is changed just a bit. Right? The Israelites sang, I will sing to the Lord because he destroyed Pharaoh. He delivered us from slavery. That song has now become, the blood of Jesus has freed me from the crushing debt of sin. And church, just like the people of Israel, our hope going forward is that the Lord is with us. That the, the mighty warrior only ever treats us with steadfast covenant love. In Christ, God has promised to love us, in the words of verse 18, forever and ever. His reign on our behalf will never end. His love, his, his chesed will never stop. God the Father can no sooner stop loving you than he can stop loving his son. And so Christian, as we look to the future, we don't have the same prophetic insight that Moses and Miriam had. We don't know exactly what our futures will hold. There may be pharaohs and Philistines and Moabites that need to be conquered. You may wrestle in your days with some pretty heavy and serious stuff. And, and the details may not be ours to know. But what we do know 
is that when you look back over your life from the perspective of eternity, when you are fully and finally at the return of the Lord Jesus caught up into verse 18, that forever and ever reign of the Lord, when you look back with perhaps perfectly adjusted, heavenly wrought 2020 eyesight, you will look over your life and see there has been a banner flying over you all of your days. A banner with the word chesed, unfailing love written in the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we can be sure that, that when we get there, when we can see our lives from that vantage point, we will be able to see what we can only trust right now. That everything that has ever happened to you has been an expression of God's unfailing love. And so perhaps the key to Christian maturity is the ability to, to live now in light of what will be true on that day. That's what we mean when we talk about walking by faith. Like the Israelites, we live and we worship with one eye on the past, on what God has done for us in Christ, and with one eye on the future, with what God has promised that he will do. And so we sing about it. When on the day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are caught up in the same praise, the same love, the same adoration that compelled the Israelites to sing on the, on the banks of the Red Sea. Who is like you, mighty to save, abounding in steadfast love to your people forever? And so, Lord, we praise you, we delight in you, we trust you, and we look to the gift of your Son, and we see this perfect picture of your great, unfailing love for your people. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause us to, to delight in that love and to walk by faith, to live now and to worship now in light of what will be true. And we ask all these things for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen.